gonemobile.io. It's Gone Mobile. Welcome back to Gone Mobile. In this episode, we're joined by Donna Malieri and Fabio Cavalcante from Microsoft. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you. Thanks a lot. We're excited to have you on, um, and and this is going to be, I guess, this is going to be a pretty hip show because we're gonna we're gonna talk about that that whole serverless thing that it seems like all the kids are talking about these days. Um, so so to start kind of at the beginning, can can you just kind of give uh, an overview of like what is this this serverless movement that's kind of picked up a lot of steam in the last couple of years? Uh, well, yeah, you're right. This is the the new hotness that everyone's talking about. Um, the idea of serverless was really popularized by Amazon Lambda. Um, and, uh, you know, Amazon traditionally was known for having a lot of compute services and VMs that you manage. And uh, with Lambda, they, they started this model where you pay for what you use and you write these little pieces of code uh, that run and you don't have to really worry about where they, they run. And... On Azure, we were doing a lot of platform as a service offerings where we're managing the VMs and managing the uh, hosting of it. We don't have to patch your own VM. You don't have to worry about your .NET framework versions. Uh, and we had this product, WebJobs, uh, that was more in the line of Amazon Lambda. And as this movement started growing, we realized that this is this is really the direction where industry is going. And it's basically the whole idea of Amazon, uh, excuse me, Azure Functions grew out of our existing offering on uh, Azure Web Jobs, which is really one of the most popular offerings that we have, and Azure Web Apps and Azure App Service. But the key, to answer your question, the key is it's even more PaaS than PaaS. In other words, you don't even have to think about the actual machines that you're running on. You just think about the functionality you have and you are basically reacting to events that are coming in and the system is automatically scaling for you based on what is coming in. So for instance, to give you a simple example, let's say you're using Azure Storage and you're writing a bunch of events to a queue and the queue gets really big and you're doing a lot of work. The system notices that, hey, you're doing a lot of processing, these queues are getting big and it automatically scales for you. And so it takes away one whole level of of ops, you know, there's still there still is ops, of course, but it it really simplifies it. So it's kind of the way DevOps simplified with PaaS, how it simplified uh, VM management compared to IaaS. Serverless just goes one step further, and it's kind of what uh, serverless is to PaaS, what PaaS is to IaaS. How I would think of it, and Fabio can add on here. And hopefully, it just puts you in a position where you don't have to even think about servers, right? So it completely abstracts that away from you. It manages all all of that infrastructure, and it's serverless in the sense that you don't have to worry or think about the servers. Uh, you can you can just focus on the on the core business problem that you're trying to solve. So, can you give us like a concrete example of like what's your hello world type of application that you would demo using this service? Uh, so what we see um, frequently uh, is a uh, functions being being employed for background processing jobs. I think that's the the, the classical example there is the the image resizing um, sample that that we we we've worked with um, with several customers, uh, um, and you see that done in in, in different um, using different uh, uh, approaches, different examples, um, but. Essentially, the the same kind of background processing tasks. Uh, that's really the the hello world uh, that 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 we see. Is like, how do I get uh, into this new serverless world? What what's a good candidate for for this this model? And I, I think that that what we see is people usually um, taking that that is the first step. Try to to handle some background task or something they they need to happen on a schedule, um, and uh, uh, that's how they they get the first taste of a, a serverless or Azure Functions implementation. Yeah, that's, that, a, that's a really good example. Um, and like, if people want to try this out, if you just go to fun, functions.azure.com, there's this like button there that says try it out. They'll take you to a really simplified portal with a bunch of pre-built uh, samples that you can try out that include things like image resizer, or I guess the simpler one would be a timer that you know runs every every two seconds. 
you wanted to be really ambitious or every every minute and um, output something. And I guess truly, if you're, if you're talking about hello world, that would be your hello world yes. example, right? Yeah, yeah. So you get started mm -hmm. with something as basic as it gets, uh, something that just runs on a schedule, runs on a timer, and either outputs to a log or it pushes a message somewhere else. Right, and in the real world, what you would probably do is go, you know, clean up your database data. Um, you know, people have misspellings when they enter data in a form, and so you don't want to be constantly polling to look for new database records, but you, you do need this processing. The problem, the challenge that people had before the serverless movement was that you'd had to pay for that VM even if it was doing nothing. Uh, with serverless, you can decide how often to run it and basically think about the functionality and the scheduling and stop thinking about the underlying compute resource. So are there some things that you see people bending uh, you know, this to be used for that aren't really well suited for it? That's a really good question. Um, I think that people are, I think one of the things that is still becoming more uh, developed is using serverless as a complete REST endpoint. It can be done, and in fact, it can be done very well. But uh, the, the tooling around that and the experience around that is still growing. But I guess I wouldn't say that's a case of, that's not a good example. I think it all depends on what your, what your application is doing. Um, so if you have an API that's used constantly, for instance, a REST API, you're probably not going to get a ton of benefit from serverless because you know what your load is and you might be able to be better off setting up some scaling rules yourself uh, because, you know, Basically, the idea here is you're not paying for capacity you don't use, but if you know you're basically using a certain number of requests per month or per day, then the system being smart is not really helping you very much. Those are cases really where you know more than what our system can figure out. So maybe that's a better way to summarize it. Um, cases where your load really is variable and the computer is better at figuring out what's going on are cases where serverless is a better fit. Cases where you know you really know, okay, at the end of the month, everyone's hitting my app. Like, I don't even want the the system to take that little bit of delay to 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 uh, scale up. And because of the nature of those services, there is a little bit of unpredictability on the on the scaling, right? So, uh, if you need more control over how things are scaling, where things are running, um, if you need more control um, over the underlying resources, um, uh, that's often when we see people going down the path of uh, actually trying to use a, a serverless compute and try to write a a, a function and realizing that they need a bit more, a little more control than what you would typically get from a fully managed environment, like what, what's offered to you uh, with uh, Azure Functions or in the case of Lambda as well. Right, now there's this, this is an interesting segue into the fact that there's two different ways to run Azure Functions. You can run it in the serverless mode, which is the dynamic app service plan. An app service plan is basically how you decide what resources you're running on. If it's serverless, then it's dynamic. You can use a classic one where you actually say what size VM you want, what features you want. And so you can actually use the same programming model on either. So if you get into a situation where you want a lot more control over what's going on with your resources, uh, and you can even do way more advanced things like have your own private environment, then you don't have to throw away the programming model. Yeah, and internally we we hear that you know being referred to as uh, another buzzword, but it's still function as a service. Both models would be function as a service, but in the dynamic case, you're going, uh, you, you are embracing the serverless approach, uh, where you 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 are not you relying on the on the infrastructure to manage that service for you. Right, and I definitely want to to dig a lot into that, and I think that's where it gets really interesting, and also where I think Azure Functions sets itself apart from some of the other offerings out there. But but before we we really go down that path, I want to make sure that we're also kind of laying the groundwork of like what this abstraction really is. So can you speak a little bit to like really like how like what these what are these functions like what is this platform and you know what are you know for for someone coming from say you know used to normal compute instances in the cloud like what like, how should they be shifting their mindset here? Like, what kinds of machines are these running on? What's the operating system? All of that sort of thing. Well, it's actually the same machines and the same compute that's underlying app service. Uh, it's just a, when it's on the dynamic app service plan, there's an additional layer of abstraction that we have under the hood that's looking at what machines you're running on and how much work you're doing. But I think 
to answer your question more directly in terms of programming model, uh, before you would be posting, let's say you're a .NET developer, you'd be deploying an ASP.NET application or a .NET Core application, but you're thinking in terms of the whole application, the whole machine that it's running on. You're thinking, you're still thinking in terms of IIS, even though that's managed for you, and if you're hosting it on Azure App Service. Uh, but you're basically imagining that you own the world, like that, or some part of the world. Whereas with Azure Functions, you get to shift your mindset into thinking about different tasks that you're doing. So let's say you have an API with five HTTP triggers and one background task. You don't have to think about your application start, your configuration. You can just think about what each function needs and what each function needs to re respond to. So for instance, let's say you have an HTTP trigger that gets some new kind of input, um, puts it into a SQL database, uh, and that's, that's one of your functions. You can just think about what it needs, what it input and output bindings it needs. We have this nice graphical editor where you can specify these things. You don't have to learn about how blob, blob storage SDK works. And with these long running uh, functions, the ones that are triggered based on some event, uh, you don't have to worry about polling, for instance. You don't have to, let's say you want to, like Fabio was saying earlier, you have an image resize uh, where people can put things, images into blob storage. For now, let's abstract away how that's done. Um, in the old model, you would have to have a loop in your program, like with web jobs, that was actually running continuously and, and looking for these new blobs. With Azure Functions, it calls you. You get to write code that's more reactive and more event-based. But under the hood, if you really want to get into the details, if, if you as a developer want to see what's going on, you can actually go into the Azure portal and you can see the, the same blades that you do with an app service. So you can see what your consumption is, you can see your app settings. There's a lot of the same uh, experience available to you. Yeah, the, the unit of work in this function programming model is really the function, right? So you shift a little bit from thinking about the application as a, as a whole uh, to thinking about the, the the core logic that that particular function is going to be implementing and the, the, the work that that function will be handling. And kind of jumping back to... I mean, earlier you were talking about one of the, the really canonical examples of, of functions and, and you see it on you know Azure site and Amazon site and all of these, where, which is that image resizing sort of example. So if we sort of play that through... That's that's a sort of operation where I would imagine could potentially be very memory intensive, right? Like you need to spin up really large, potentially large memory instances to process these images and store them back down to some sort of blob storage or what have you. Um, so so how does that sort of memory constraint work in, in this sort of environment where you might need to scale out or you ideally want to scale out lots of large memory instances for a very short period of time to do those operations? Yeah, so uh, the, the infrastructure is smart enough to to observe and, and uh, look at the history of your function execution and understand how uh, that function is consuming memory. Uh, that helps us uh, with the initial allocation, but also as your function processes more data, uh, we can we can identify uh, when memory pressure is being put on the on the the particular environment that function is running under and make sure that proper allocations are made at that point so your function has the resources it needs in order to, to correctly operate. Um, so there is a lot of intelligence that's put in place with the dynamic uh, compute um, to handle those scenarios and make sure that uh, different different demands are met differently and, and the assignment is happening correctly uh, to so that your, your function, your logic is, is executing successfully. And is the idea that as a as a developer that this is sort of abstracted away from me and I'm not thinking about memory consumption, I'm just thinking about like I have a function that does some task and it should run and that's where I stop caring? So that, that's the ultimate goal, right? Is where we, there is that, that, that platform abstraction in place and uh, that completely eliminates the need for you to think about um, you know the size of the VM you're running uh, on, the number of VMs that are handling your your requests. Is that the the goal there is that the the infrastructure is smart enough to to make sure uh, we we keep up with the demand. Um, and as demand is gone, uh, we also scale all the way down uh, to reduce costs. So uh, that that is the 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 ultimate goal. And it also encourages you to use better programming style when it comes to uh, the server applications where you're more stateless. 
I mean, that is obviously the pattern that you generally want is each request has only the state that's required for that. Uh, with Azure Functions, it's actually, you have to go out of your way to be capturing state across requests. Of course, that's the case with many web frameworks, but uh, it's the way the programming model is set up, um, you know, it's, and the way the scaling is done, you, if you program the right way, the right things are going to happen. Yeah, there are a lot of best practices and there's a lot of guidance that we, that we provide when it comes to the function programming model that, that we mentioned. Um, you know, the stateless uh, uh, nature of functions is, is definitely something that, that we cover uh, with that. Uh, but there are some key things that you would be doing a little differently too um, when using functions. Um, making sure that you're doing uh, your work as quickly as possible uh, is another uh, key difference there. Uh, and that the, a good way to, to achieve that is by making sure that your functions are handling one task and one task only. Um, oftentimes we see people coming in with a, the, you know, the traditional uh, approach of trying to, to write uh, almost a, a full application as part of a function. Uh, and uh, that, that leads to, to issues where we can't really uh, sample that the function as well so that the, the dynamic compute is uh, doing what it's supposed to, but also becomes a lot harder to maintain and troubleshoot when issues arise. So um, uh, part of the guidance that we provide with functions, the function programming model approach is that, um, you know, functions, they, they need to be, uh, they need to execute as quickly as possible and be really focused on the task uh, that they are trying to, to perform. Um, you know, you want to limit yourself to one task and one task only. Uh, and uh, if needed, expand to having more functions that handle uh, additional tasks as a result of, a, uh, you know, a, a larger solution that you put in place. And um, in addition to making it so that the runtime knows what to do and handles the load properly, it actually improves the application design substantially. So, for instance, um, you know, with traditional web frameworks, people would sometimes write code where it's doing, let's say, let's say it's taking an image as input and doing some processing on it, and then doing some post-processing based on that. So, like for instance, um, Greg had this blog post on using cognitive services. It's a great blog post using cognitive services. Um, to to see emotions on an image. Now, let's say you are doing that cognitive services processing, and based on the output of that, let's say you're producing another image. Uh, a common way to do this in the old model would be to to put all of that in one big giant HTTP request. And you know, if the images are small enough, it basically works out. But the problem is that when you have load, it's not going to be so great, and each step of that pipeline can fail. And so a better architecture for your application is actually to split that up into different phases. And so you have one phase that's taking in the image, doing the first phase of post of processing, and then the second phase, and you know, using say queue storage in between. And so not only does the system figure out what's going on better because it can understand what these functions are doing, but your app is actually designed a lot better now. And if something goes wrong, you as a developer can go in and say, oh, okay, so this part, this 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 uh, first processing phase is using a lot of compute. Maybe I'll move that to um, its own instance, or maybe I'll, I'll tweak the settings on that, uh, or maybe I will design my application differently so the load isn't going off this thing. So it turns out that in a lot of cases, the good programming model of functions also aligns with a good programming model for your application, your system as a whole. That just touched on the point that this also enables you to um, manage and troubleshoot issues that may arise as a result of uh, um, invoking those functions. Uh, it, it's a lot simpler to do that once they are they are broken up. And not only that, but from a, a reliability perspective and, yep. and, and efficient use of resources, um, instead of failing in a monolithic function and requiring perhaps the, the entire set of steps to happen again, you can then... Uh, design your system, design your functions in a way where you can just pick up from phase three out of a five-step, you know, solution or five-step process and uh, um, make efficient use of resources and not have to redo uh, everything from the very beginning um, as as you deal with failure. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and sort of continuing on from that, but and talking about sort of how you architect these applications in Azure Functions, um, can you speak a bit to like what function apps are? As I, this is something where I see a, a lot of confusion about because it's, it's actually something that differs a bit from some of the other platforms that are out there where in Azure you have a, you can have a grouping of functions that are under one single function app. Like, so how, how does that sort of work into this model? 
Yeah, that, that's a great question. We, we, we see a little bit of confusion because it is a, a, a concept that, that's specific to Azure Functions. Um, but I, I think the way you described it is a, a good way to think about function apps. Uh, it's essentially a, a grouping of functions that, that execute under the same host. Uh, so functions within the, the, the same function app, uh, they share the host. Uh, so the hosting environment is essentially the same. There's no um, true hosting isolation between those functions. Um, so it, that, that's the way to think about uh, you know, the app and, and the way you manage uh, application settings, the way you manage connection strings and secrets is also at the function app level. Um, so you have the ability to share um, uh, secrets, to share settings, and easily manage them for functions that, that that use a common set of settings, that use a common set of uh, 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 connection strings or information that you want to share and spread across all of those different uh, distinct function function instances. Does that buy you some things in terms of like performance of like you know functions calling each other and and um, minimizing sort of the delay in, in moving data around? Uh, if those functions are calling each other, uh, as long as you have two function apps in the same region, in the same, uh, that you won't you won't see uh, uh, a lot of difference when it comes to you know latency if you're calling over HTTP. Depending on the queue trigger, depending on the type of trigger that you're using, uh, you won't see a lot of difference. Uh, one key thing with a function app is also that uh, it, it, that is your unit of deployment, right? So if you're if you're working with a, 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 a the traditional uh, deployment uh, flow where you, you are in the, using source control, you have continuous de deployment enabled, uh, we are deploying an entire function app and not an individual function. Um, so that that's another way to to distinguish the you know and decide whether you want to go with a, uh, combining all of your functions under a single function app, or perhaps having different function apps for um, you know distinct functions that, that you, you develop as part of your overall solution. Right. So one one tip uh, for whether or not something could be together in a function app is whether or not you want to deploy them together. And this gives you some flexibility compared to other models. So if you have several functions that are tightly coupled in terms of functionality, and if you change one, another one has to change, um, and you're you know they're all in the same Git repo, you really it really is quite an advantage to be able to deploy them together and test them together. Um, now, if you're if they're in separate repos, they have separate pieces of functionality. Maybe the, that's a good case. If they're not sharing settings. That's a good uh, situation where you might want to put them in separate function apps. Yeah, one thing to keep in mind is that the, since those functions are sharing the same host, uh, you know, they do share resources. They are they are competing for resources. So if you have two, uh, you know, resource demanding functions, um, it, it it may run into a situation where you may need to to split them or may want to split them so you can better manage how those functions are actually consuming and taking advantage of resources that are made available to you um, by the, the underlying infrastructure. Right, so one way to summarize this is kind of, it gives you a lot more power because you get to decide that you want these functions to be grouped together. So uh, that has trade-offs because you can share settings, share deployment, uh, that there's the pros, the cons can potentially be they're competing with each other. So, uh, you know, I kind of like to think of it as it's another knob that we get we're giving to the maybe that was not a best choice of word <laughs> another <laughs> dial that we're giving to the customer uh, that they can choose to to how they want to dial their their resource usage and, and group things together or not uh, depending on what the needs are of the application. And how does that end up playing into then what we were talking about earlier of you know how when you're when you're dealing with the when your unit of operation is, is at this function level you're not necessarily you're leaving. The developers leaving it up to to you guys to to scale that out to different instances or and and all that sort of thing. Um, how does that play into a, a function app where you have multiple functions kind of sharing resources? There, will will Azure then spin up as many instances of that function app as it needs, or like how does that sort of play together? That's that's correct. So that's the approach. the 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 resource consumption is a uh, uh, for uh, as far as scaling is concerned, it, it's really um, some of the metrics that are captured uh, will be at the function nap level, um, so the the scaling will be decided at, at that level. Um, but it, the the controller is a, is a little smarter than that, so it, it can look at, at metrics that are specific to 
a single function as well. So an example of that would be a, a queue trigger. So if you have a, a one function in your function app that that is being triggered uh, by queue messages that you are sending by by a different client, uh, there will be scaling that is triggered if you if that queue if we can't keep up with the demand if we can't keep up with the number of messages that are being queued up. So we will increase the number of instances uh, based on those messages, even if your overall resource consumption is is you know low from a memory perspective, for instance, um, you know, from, from the other functions. So uh, there are metrics that are function app um, at the function app level, and there are metrics that are specific to a, a given function when deciding to, to scale up or down. Yeah, and we're continuously improving this. Uh, as we're seeing how customers are using this, customers are coming to us with all kinds of interesting problems and interesting ways of grouping things together. And, um, you know, even the past couple of months, there have been huge improvements with with how much smarts we're putting into the system. We're continuing to invest. So as the product gets to general availability and beyond, uh, you can expect a lot more in this. This is like a huge uh, area of focus for us. Uh, that along with the the program mo programming model or the kind of uh, some of the, the key areas that we're looking at. This episode is brought to you by Raygun. Raygun offers leading error and crash reporting to over 30,000 developers around the globe and now offers real user monitoring for both web and mobile apps. Raygun's native mobile support brings deep analytics about how users are engaging with your mobile apps. Raygun platform customers can discover problems affecting their end users automatically, giving developer teams unique insights into the performance of their apps. Raygun offers a free 30-day trial, so get started at raygun.com today and make sure to thank them for sponsoring Gone Mobile. Can you talk a little bit more about you know how we can actually trigger functions? You mentioned a couple of different ways, but I I think there's probably a little bit more to dig into there. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so before we dive into what triggers are available, I think it would be worth spending a little bit of time talking about this this other abstraction. So we have this dual abstraction uh, with Azure Functions. So in addition to abstracting the, the underlying platform away from you, so you don't have to think about servers, you don't have to think about the number of instances, the, the instance size, we also have this uh, uh, a programming model that provides an abstraction on top of uh, the, the different services that you may be consuming in your function. Uh, we call these integrations, we call the, the different service integrations that we have as part of functions, we call them bindings. And some bindings are of trigger type. Um, so you can have a, a type of binding that acts as a, as a trigger, as an event source. Um, and a so, trigger basically means that you're going to get an event based correct. on something. A binding means that in your code, you get a POCO that has the, the data from a database or a blob. Yeah, or, or in the node, um, the, in in the node world, you would get just a, a you know a, a JSON object that 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 specifies that provides the data that you need to work with. It, it really depends on how you decide to to take that data in. Uh, but the the core concept to keep in mind is that we do provide that abstraction that again helps you just focus on the on the core business problem that you're trying to solve. So one example of that is with the the blob trigger. So if you are executing a a, a function as a result of a blob being created in, in Azure storage, um, you're not required to understand how the storage SDK actually works. You're not required to understand uh, how to deal with failures um, when when communicating with blob storage. That's all abstracted away and handled for you. Uh, we do give you the ability to um, you know, bind or use more advanced types so you can get a little closer to the metal if you need to. But in most cases, um, people will be working with uh, uh, types like strings and strings and just focusing really on the on the core logic uh, that is required to solve the problem they're trying to solve with their function. Um, uh, so that that's one example of a trigger. Um, some of the other triggers we make available out of the box uh, are the, the HTTP triggers, um, a, a series of webhook um, enabled triggers as well. So you have uh, provider-specific webhook support, um, which gives you the ability to, uh, out of the box, saying, hey, I, I just want to receive a webhook from a request from GitHub and have that, that fully authenticated, uh, that event completely processed before my function is invoked. So we have support for that as well. And we have a number of receivers uh, that are made available to you out of the box. Um, uh, additional trigger types um, are uh, table storage, 
Uh, Azure Event Hub. Event Hub, Service Bus. Um, you, you can work with IoT uh, uh, hubs to, to uh, limited, uh, limited degree right now, but that, that's a, uh, an area that, that we're making some enhancements as well. Uh, and we also have uh, integration with uh, uh, logic apps that enables you to to work and, and take a lot of that data uh, as event input and triggers as well. Right. So of course, there's a timer timer trigger. <laughs> we forgot the simplest one. Yeah, the simplest one of all is like yeah. If I just if you just want to execute a a task on a timer on a schedule, uh, there is a timer trigger that that enables you to do so. You can't forget about the timer. Um, you can't forget about the timer. It's our hello world, right? <laughs> uh, and when you're talking about triggers coming from things like, say, table storage or blob storage, like what are the types of events that you can get out of there? I mean, can you get, say, like fine-grained, you know, something put into blob storage with a certain path or name or when, like, rows are added or updated to table storage? Like what, how granular can you get with these events? So for some of the triggers, you do have uh, a high degree of granularity where you can specify, um, you know, a specific, um, based on, on, on a particular topic um, that in service buzz on what, how you want to listen for those events. Um, some other events, you don't have as much flexibility. So it really depends on the trigger type you're using. Um, for blob storage right now, some of that, that uh, you have the ability to, to determine and define which container you're going to be be watching. Um, and uh, at that point, anything that, that hits or is modified in that container, you, you will get that as an event. Um, but again, the the, the level of, of granularity, uh, the, the different options will vary a lot depending on the trigger type you're using. And really what that comes down to is what the service offers. So for instance, you know, I would love uh, if I were, you know, I'm, I'm not that advanced of a developer because um, I'm a, a program manager. I don't write code most of the time. I would love if I could write a timer trigger, sorry, a, a SQL database trigger that, you know, there's a row with a particular value. It calls back fu my function. I don't even have to think about the fact that it's a relational database and there's indexing and there's triggers. I mean, that would be fantastic. That would be such an easy programming model. But unfortunately, that's a super hard problem because... Uh, databases have, uh, you know, all kinds of things going on. Uh, you know, that would be put huge load on most SQL databases. Um, and it's probably not a good design. But if I, we have seen the case where uh, customers have stored procedures that are doing very specific tasks, and from that they want to trigger a function. And so one thing that can potentially work is to uh, send to an event hub, for instance, that are particularly, so in other words, you have some kind of background processing that's going maybe your database layer or some other kind of business logic layer, and that can pump events through, say, to event hub to service bus. And so even if your underlying system can't handle these kind of fine grain uh, events, uh, if that's code that you can customize, there's a lot that you can do there. But really the limit here is not what functions can do, but what these services can do. And with functions, we're not trying to abstract over these services. Like we would never make a SQL listener that that does this terrible design that I was just talking about. Um, but if uh, you know, if a SQL Azure at, had something like this for stored procedure binding, uh, then we would make that available. So that's the right way to think about it. It's not really what the functions triggers are, but it's what what are the primitives that these services are offering? What kind of events do they expose? And then we do the work to make that really nice in terms of what code you write. And all that's to talk about sort of the the input. So we have input from table storage, input from blob storage or webhooks or what have you. Um, like what's the model like going out from a function? So it's, it's a very similar model uh, to, to the way we deal with inputs. Um, so if you're talking about a .NET based language like F Sharp or C Sharp, um, you, you can um, essentially define the, the binding metadata. So you define your inputs, your outputs, and you can bind it, uh, that information to function parameters. Um, so even your output will be bound to either a function parameter or the result, the return value of your function. Uh, uh, an example of that is an HTTP request that comes in with an HTTP trigger. Um, and uh, once your function is triggered and you execute your logic, you have the ability to either assign a, a value to uh, a parameter that is then mapped to a binding, 
uh, or you can just return uh, from your function, which would be translated to an HTTP response that that is uh, uh, handled uh, by the, the the framework by by Azure Functions, uh, and will be sent back to the the the, the client re- making that request, issuing that request. Um, but this this binding concept is largely b- uh, based on the the binding um, parameters uh, from your function to uh, the the bindings that are defined in your function metadata. This will vary a little bit when you start looking at different languages because we want to make sure that that we we approach this in a way that feels familiar to uh, people using the, some of the different languages that we support uh, in functions. Uh, so we know, for instance, you have this context object that is provided to you, uh, and you have the ability to assign the you know different results to. Um, the the context to the bindings in, within your context um, to make sure those values are properly assigned as a result of as the output of your function invocation. So now, so now we're talking about you have all these these very small units then, right? Like all these little functions with with inputs and outputs, um, and you're kind of stringing them together into a larger, more cohesive application. Uh, I could imagine that this sort of thing would get pretty hard to keep track of. You know, the the way data and events can sort of flow through a system. I mean, is there anything that Azure provides to to sort of maybe visualize that, or or at least have some way of sort of tracing a route that a, a certain event is going to take? No, nothing really out of the box today that would provide you rich visualization, um, but it is something that we have definitely heard that request a lot. And uh, so uh, tooling is still fairly immature at this point, and not just for Azure Functions, but overall in this space. Um, you know, when you, when you talk about serverless, I think uh, uh, tooling and all of the supporting um, uh, frameworks, uh, they are still kind of... Uh, uh, being developed, we're still trying to understand how people are using this. Um, so, uh, before people are making huge investments in tooling, we we really want to have clarity and make sure that we understand what would be valuable for people to to have. But th- what you just mentioned is something that we hear all the time. So it's definitely uh, an area that um, you know we'll be we'll be paying attention to uh, and uh, hopefully investing some 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 time and resources in the near future to provide something that that gives you that that kind of capability because uh, I, I agree with you as you start breaking uh, those different units of work down uh, in different into different functions uh, sometimes it becomes very hard to to trace um, you know where things are failing where you know where things are going um, so something like uh, something that enables you to, to visualize and very easily trace that that information uh, would be very helpful. Yeah, and some of our team members are even saying, "Oh, I'm, I'm just going to prototype this. I really yeah, want to yeah. <laughs> just help me debug my own function." So I think we'll see we'll see some things coming out of this space. But as Fabio said, it's really the industry around this is also pretty nascent. So what is the development experience like? I mean, do you edit things in the Azure portal? Can you run functions locally? Can you dig into this a little bit? Absolutely. Um, so the the Azure portal experience is that it, it's really your first experience with functions, right? So when you when you land on the portal, when you create a new function app, uh, we we don't require uh, any additional tooling at that point. So you can actually get started developing your function and running your functions right away within the portal. Uh, so you can write your code uh, in, inside of the portal. Um, you, you know, functions will be dynamically compiled. Uh, everything will be ready to run right away without requiring any any additional tooling. So you can do that from from any device, from any kind of computer. Uh, as long as you can browse to 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 the portal, um, to the website, you can write your functions. Uh, as you're getting more advanced and uh, you're taking you know your next steps within function, if you want to to have a uh, 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 a better processing place where you actually develop locally. Um, you you can debug things locally. Uh, we we have a, a set of uh, tools that are being developed. Some are already made available to you today. Um, so you can uh, go to npm today uh, and install the the Azure Function CLI, which you, will give you a lot of that that experience without having to uh, without requiring you to to go to the portal. Uh, in order to uh, to create and uh, uh, debug your functions, so you can actually get started locally on your machine, uh, create the the, the functions uh, using the, essentially the same templates that are available to you on the portal. Uh, but you can do that all on the on the local on your local machine, and when you write that that function using 
whatever IDE you choose to use, um, you can actually run and debug locally as well. Um, so we, we do provide uh, the ability for you to run those functions locally. Um, the, the entire Azure Functions infrastructure, the host that actually executes your functions, um, is all developed in the in the open, so it's all open source, uh, and that same host is essentially being used when running the CLI. So when you're debugging and running locally, developing locally, uh, the same host is actually running on your machine. So if you have a, a pretty high level of fidelity with what you have, uh, you know, in, in when your function is is running in Azure on the cloud. Uh, but giving you that local development experience where you can actually set breakpoints in, in your functions, you can you can step through in, in some of the languages. Uh, and once you're ready and you've performed all, all of the validation, uh, if you have uh, uh, source control integration enabled with uh, your, your function app, you can just push uh, to your source control, which will trigger an automatic deployment of your function as well. So you can, uh, as you move, um, further down the, the, the line on the, as your development process becomes a little more advanced, uh, you can actually move completely away from the portal and have your entire development be do, being done locally uh, and, in the, and all driven by uh, your source control integration and the continuous development, continuous deployment. Yeah, and one of our top requests around this uh, that we're working on is uh, integration into Visual Studio. And so this is, if you look on our functions user voice, it's what I think it's the top request, yeah. uh, both tooling for Visual Studio, regular Visual Studio and Visual Studio Code. And these are things that we're working on. And we, we totally, especially for .NET customers, we totally hear you. We share, share the pain of not having IntelliSense. That's like one of the top things that, that we're planning on addressing within the coming months. Uh, and, uh, you know, we definitely want to provide the experience that the customers are used to when these, in these regards. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, like tooling is still one, one of the biggest uh, weak points, weak, weak areas in the not only functions, but in the, the, in the, the serverless space. Um, so there's a lot of uh, progress to be made there, and uh, we're actually really looking forward to, to a lot of the, the executing on a lot of the ideas uh, that you know customers have, as well as uh, we have internally. Um, we're excited about some of the things that we have in the works right now. Yeah. So so basically, stay tuned for more on this. <laughs> yeah, and, and sort of to to echo what you were saying a little bit, just from my own experiences, having recently built a, a quote unquote serverless app um, recently. Uh, on, on AWS Lambda, not on Azure Functions specifically, like it, it was it was very freeing in, in a way to be able to build in this sort of way, but the the state of the tooling in that world is, is just kind of abysmal. So it's definitely somewhere where, and this is me injecting personal opinion um, in, into the conversation here, but like it's something where I think you guys at Microsoft could really set yourselves apart by providing a really nice tooling experience for for this sort of programming model where and there is a lot of power, you just need a good way to, to sort of leverage that. Absolutely, we're on the same page uh, with regard to what we could do there. Yeah, that, that's an interesting way to put it too. Is that, that, you know, you, with this model, we don't have a lot of tooling in the way. So you don't have a lot of uh, stuff getting in the way. You can very quickly uh, get up and running by writing a function. So not a lot in your way, but when you need help, uh, you will also lack the tooling that, that provides a lot of the help that you're used to when you're running within an IDE using traditional development uh, methodologies. Right. Yeah, you don't want the tooling to get in your way, but you want it to, to help you because eventually these are production applications that are running. So Absolutely. that's definitely yeah. what you need. Um, and sort of the, the other experience that I, that I sort of had as I was building that application is that you end up building, like as you sort of start architecting these bigger event-driven things, you know, it very much becomes a big pipeline of events, right? Um, so the whole time that I was building this thing in JavaScript, I, I found myself like really wishing that I was building it in F-sharp, which is why I was one of the, the people on Twitter always complaining that there wasn't first-class F-sharp support in Azure Functions, which there now is. Um, yeah, so, and we're so. <laughs> super excited about, by the way. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I we're we're working really closely with the AppSharp team. I have a call tomorrow with uh, Don Syme to to go over and some some new people over there. They're they're contributing documentation. They're tr contributing code. They're doing a ton of great work with us on that. Right. Yeah. And I, and I think a language like that is just super well suited to that sort of thing. Um, but it is also something where I think Azure Functions it sets itself apart a little bit from the other platforms as well, where there, you guys support a lot of different languages for writing these things. So can you kind of talk to you know, all the what the options are for writing Azure Functions? 
Yeah, so the core options uh, today are really uh, the .NET based languages uh, like C Sharp and F Sharp and Node. So those are really what would give you the, the full Azure Functions experience. Uh, we have other languages that we also support. Um, we typically refer to those languages as being in, in, in experimental, uh, or they, they're also classified as the scripting languages. Uh, they, they don't give you quite the same experience that you have with the, the, the first languages I mentioned, uh, but they give you the ability to, to you know, handle very simple tasks uh, in a very familiar way to a lot of people. So you, you can get like IT pros coming in and writing something using uh, Batch, uh, PowerShell, uh, Bash, uh, PHP, uh, Python. We have a, a support, limited support for for a, a large number of languages. When you when you consider all of those additional scripting languages that I uh, that I just mentioned. And are those ones where you would recommend that them as sort of uh, as a good experience or, or languages that you should really reach for when when doing these sorts of things, or are they just there sort of as options for for little things as needed? Um, they are they are mostly uh, you know different options uh, to to cater to to you know different backgrounds and uh, uh, they they give you access to the same uh, essentially the same uh, set of features. Um, so I, I don't know that I would recommend one over the other. Um, um, you know, in the scripting space, uh, there have been uh, uh, quite a bit of uh, uh, investment in the in, in PowerShell uh, recently. Uh, so we do see PowerShell performing pretty pretty well. Uh, so if you're a PowerShell guy, if you're deciding between using perhaps PowerShell or Bash, uh, I would definitely go down the the PowerShell route. Uh, but aside from that, I think your experience is going to be very similar uh, with any of the the those scripting languages uh, that I just mentioned. Cool. And, and sort of I've mentioned, you know, in passing a few times, like a couple of ways that, that I've personally found Azure Functions to, to be a bit different than, um, you know, some of the other serverless uh, platforms that are out there. But I'd be curious if there's anything that that, that we haven't really talked about that, that you guys think really sets Azure Functions apart from from some of what the other platforms are doing out there. I mean, there's AWS Lambda, Google's doing this now with their cloud functions. There's OpenWhisk, um, and I'm sure there's even more than that. Yeah, I, I don't know, Donna, if you want to want to mention anything specifically, but uh, I I think I personally think that this dual abstraction model that that we we provide is a a, a key differentiator when you compare to some of the other offerings, right? This this capability that that we we have of providing these bindings, this uh, a programming model that completely abstracts away uh, the the different trigger and input and output technologies uh, that you are you're relying on to write your functions uh, I think that that's something that that's kind of sets us apart that's one of the things that sets us apart uh, the ability to also run the same infrastructure the same the same runtime uh, in classic mode if you have the need for you know more control and and uh, have the need to uh, manage your environment yourself um, that that's another thing that that's very different when you compare to some of the other serverless offerings that uh, that you see out there. Um, from my perspective, those are probably the the, the top things: um, the the programming model, the dual abstraction model that we provide, as well as uh, the ability to run in a classic mode if you wish to do so. Yeah, and then some other uh, more uh, peripheral features that are still important, but not as not as big. I would say are things like uh, you get Azure Active Directory, so you have an enterprise security option built in if you want to protect your um, Azure, your function apps, uh, as well as the social providers. The the enterprise level one is one thing that's unique to Azure. Um, the other thing that uh, traditionally Azure App Service has done pretty well uh, is the continuous integration and deployment. We have a really good story there. We're improving it with functions. There were some caveats and gotchas earlier on, but we've really, uh, Fabio in particular actually has worked on a lot of these fixes like NuGet Package Restore. Um, but really the continuous integration and development story in uh, Azure App Service is really mature. It's been, you know, it's people are using it in production. Um, Azure.microsoft.com actually uses that workflow to, to build out such a big site. So um, that's, the, the underlying platform, the fact that it's built on something that's that's been tested, uh, you know, tried and tested, is is something that I think uh, we really uh, appreciate because we get a bunch of stuff 
you know, we're building all this stuff on top of that. We get all of these features and functionality for free. Um, you know, we, we're developing this host. And the other nice thing is we're developing the host in the open. It's all open source. And so people can see what we're doing. The other day, we had someone uh, file um, a bug report while we were doing triage, and so we think we think customers are even figuring out when we do our triage meetings. So it's it's really <laughs> awesome to work on something where we can talk to customers so openly about what we're doing. Yeah, and, and something Donna just touched on, but it's important to uh, perhaps emphasize is the fact that Azure Functions wasn't built uh, from scratch uh, to offer all, all of the different capabilities that we have today. Right, uh, we are built on top of a, a, a set a set of core technologies that have been around for a while now with app services. Uh, so we, we we are lucky enough to inherit a lot of those services, a lot of the, the the continuous deployment, the CI capabilities offered by app services. We just inherit that. Um, and, and those are time-tested features. Um, those are things that have been around for a long time that Azure websites customers, uh, um, web app customers ha have been using for a very long time. Um, uh, things like uh, the, the authentication features built into web service, uh, we, we just get to leverage and, and benefit from all of those uh, uh, great uh, set of features that we have in the underlying infrastructure, as well as the, the framework that we sit on top of with web jobs. Um, so all of the features that, that customers have been using with web jobs for, for years now, uh, with uh, the different bindings, we just get to take advantage of that. And that's what, what provides the programming model that we expose within functions. Can you talk a little bit about pricing? Um, you know, earlier when we talked about how it was functions are intelligent enough to scale to things like memory needs and everything, that kind of got me thinking that pricing could be a tricky uh, problem to tackle itself. It is. You're absolutely right. Um, so uh, pricing is is complicated for that reason. Um, our pricing page right now is a little confusing. Uh, we're we're actively working on this. We're discussing how to explain this better to customers. But at a high level, what you pay for, well, first off, you get for free a million executions, uh, and that is correct me. What was the the gigabyte the memory? It's 128. The, on the memory size? Yes. Yeah, at, at, the, at the, the lower memory tier. Yes. But. Um, and what you pay for is how many executions of your function you have and how much uh, resources. That would be, generally speaking, CPU and memory. If you get really crazy, it can involve network, but generally it's the CPU and memory. So basically, uh, how many executions do you have and how many, how many resources are you using uh, per function app? Now, that's a key point. And that's one of the things that we definitely need to get better at explaining is that it's in, in contrast to some other models, it's not per function, it's per function app. And that can be bad or good depending on how you've designed your system. So it could be that your function app can now share these resources together across functions and your overall memory usage will be lower or your overall CPU will be lower or maybe for your app you'd want to split it out into multiple functions. Um, but now, this is the dynamic app service plan that we're talking about. This is the, the true serverless model. Um, and there are different options for how much uh, memory you want to have available to your function. And, you know, as you as you scale out to more instances, then your each execution is, is going to be using more CPU and memory. Uh, now, the other option of how to run this, which is not the serverless model, the more traditional classic app service plan, as we call it, is where, you know, you actually are using the exact same pricing scheme as uh, Azure App Service, where, you know, there's these basic standard and premium tiers, and uh, you're, you know, it's not serverless at all at that point. You're, you're reserving uh, a VM, and uh, you're just, you have full control over what's going on there. So that can be... Uh, positive or negative, depending on what your application needs to do. Cool. And you mentioned, um, the, you know, the the tooling is obviously still a work in progress. There's still a lot, a lot of kind of moving pieces here, and a lot of improvements um, being made you know, week after week, just from following the the GitHub repositories and all that. Um, would you say that Azure Functions are are ready for for quote unquote production use today? Like, is it is it something where you can you can actively recommend customers start shipping production apps that they rely on within this environment? 
Uh, not yet, uh, because we're still in preview, so we have no no SLA, no service level agreement. For very big customers who you know have really interesting scenarios, we're working with some of them now. Um, so if there's just some big customer listening to this call, just get in touch with us, um, and we'll 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 talk to you about if you want to go if you want to go to production, we'll provide you the extra support that you need. Um, for most customers, what we recommend is you know do this for dev test. We're um, actively working on getting to, to general availability where we'll have an SLA, you know, it's, it's, it's in the works. Um, so it's, uh, basically you can get close to production, uh, at this point, but you should wait a few more months, uh, as we, as we finalize things out, uh, where we can actually provide you the same guarantees that we provide with Azure App Service. So we're talking a matter of, of months from now for, for this yes, to kind of go right. hit GA. Yep, that's right. Awesome. Um, so, is there anything anything we didn't touch on? Anything in the roadmap there, or in the function in the feature list that, that we should definitely uh, call out before we, we close out? Well, Fabio has a super awesome scenario where he's doing integration with mobile apps. Since this is the Gone Mobile pod podcast, uh, you could talk a little bit about how you can use functions to enhance existing mobile backends. I like it. Yeah, well, one of the things that we see a lot, uh, we, we, we see a lot of questions from mobile developers, um, uh, you know, just curious about functions and trying to understand whether this is something they can use to replace their existing mobile backend. Um, and we're kind of approaching this a little differently where we know we have a, a great set of capabilities with uh, uh, Azure mobile apps um, today, uh, giving you offline data sync, offline image and blob synchronization. Uh, and instead of uh, uh, some of the scenarios we're putting together to, to provide as guidance is uh, to actually combine those two different services to have something that's much better uh, than what, what you would have with any of those services uh, alone. Um, so you, I'm trying to, to work on with, with the team on a set of uh, samples that we're going to be make, uh, making available on how to uh, leverage Azure Functions from a mobile app. Uh, and by mobile app, I'm talking specifically about uh, Azure mobile apps uh, and the services that uh, that we provide. Um, that some of the scenarios that we looked at are scenarios managing uh, images with blobs that, that work as triggers uh, invoking Azure Functions. Uh, hosted functions to to handle um, a, a series of different uh, requirements, uh, both for uh, moderation as well as uh, uh, image processing, uh, for data enrichment. Um, so there is a lot of uh, uh, guidance that we're working to provide on how you can combine those two services um, to, to essentially enhance the mobile development uh, process. Uh, some of the, the issues that we are hoping to address as well is how you can better make use of APIs that are often just uh, uh, designed to, to be used from a, a server backend and actually expose that in a way that can be easily consumed by, by a mobile app uh, without leaking secrets, without having the, 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 the mobile app having to understand how to talk to, to that specific uh you know, set of technologies, uh, all by leveraging what what Azure Functions has to offer. Um, you know, with the, the the programming model abstraction that that we discussed, as well as uh, uh, having the ability to queue up events that would then uh, ultimately be translating into you know a service consumption from either Twilio or SendGrid or some other service that you may, you may wish to use. Right, and we actually have a sample that we'll link to in the podcast notes that's called Contoso Moments because all of the Microsoft samples usually involve the company Contoso. So this is a very, very, very basic Instagram clone, um, but one of the ways in which it uses, it uses Xamarin Forms and Azure mobile apps, and it actually uses Azure Functions for image resize. So there's an example of how you can basically enhance an existing Azure mobile apps backend, um, and you could also do the same pattern on a backend that's hosted somewhere else or with some other technology. The integration will you know, have a little bit more work because you'd probably make HTTP calls across, but um, it's a way to enhance existing uh, backend applications. That sounds great, and we'll definitely put that in the show notes. Is there somewhere, um, is there anywhere in particular that listeners can kind of, like a space that listeners can watch for, for some of the other kind of samples and, and guidance that you're, you're, you just talked about that, that's going to be coming out in the future? Uh, yes, if they go to the Azure Samples page, uh, there are, uh, just search for Azure Code Samples, uh, and then if you go to the Functions drop down, you'll see three samples right now, 
Uh, two of them are written by me. Uh, but these are we're filling these out. Um, and uh, this is and then we'll put the Contoso Moments one in here as well. So uh, folks can uh, can check out those. And we'll also get uh, bigger announcements tweeted uh, with the at Azure Twitter handle. And we also have the Azure App Service team blog that we'll link in the notes where basically all kinds of people, all folks, all kinds of folks in the team, including the developers and the program managers, everyone's posting about what they're working on. That sounds awesome. Yeah, we'll, we'll fill up the show notes with lots of good links. Um, but thanks for, thanks so much for taking the time to, to chat about all this today. Oh, thank you very much. Yeah, guys. thanks. It's been awesome. All right. And thanks everyone for listening and we'll see you next time on Gone Mobile.